quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Slowing down, China sees a drop in new coronavirus infections. Vision mixed, SoftBank profits plunging 99% as WeWork and Uber investments weigh. And fixing the fold, Samsung hopes consumers and investors flip out over its new phone. It's Wednesday, let's make a move. Once again, to our first movers all around the globe. Great to be with you. New Hampshire Democrats are feeling the burn today from Bernie and Buttigieg. And I have to say, Wall Street bulls are pretty fired up too. Let me walk you through what's been happening. U.S. futures solidly higher once again, as you can see, after the S&P and the Nasdaq closed at fresh record highs yesterday. The Dow, the relative underperformer, the Boeing burden continues. No orders last month and tech regulation fears, I think, taking some of the heat out of Microsoft yesterday too. Meanwhile, stocks in Europe also hitting record highs. Asia also had a good session too. The Shanghai Composite advancing for the fifth straight session. Other Asian stocks had a good session too. India, as you can see, up from eight-tenths of one percent. Thailand up one percent. Investors, it seems, willing to rely on central bank stimulus to offset any broader coronavirus and growth risks here. Well, that was the message from Fed Chair Jay Powell. He said the Fed stands ready to act if the virus endangers the U.S. expansion. No need to do anything, he says, just yet. Back on Capitol Hill today for more testimony. So we will be watching that. Soothing words, though, from central banks, clearly helping the mood in the bond markets too. Take a look at the US 10-year yields back up over 1.6% today, bouncing off those five-month lows and the other big safe haven play, the US dollar sitting near four-month highs. The economic bulls will be closely watching this. Dollar strength, of course, could pressure profits for US multinationals in next earning season. All right, let's get to the drivers. China reporting its lowest number of new coronavirus cases since January on Wednesday. The count still rising, though. 1,100 deaths and 45,000 infections have been confirmed. Thousands of people remain stranded on cruise ships. Cases aboard the Diamond Princess in Tokyo continue to multiply, too. Another cruise ship carrying some 2,000 people has been turned away from four different ports. David Culver joins me from Beijing. David, early days at this stage, but the suggestion, it seems that we are seeing a degree of light at the end of the tunnel. How confident can we be at this stage, if at all? 
With all of these numbers, Julia, we always have to consider the source. I mean, this is the Chinese government putting out this data, and that's really all we have to rely on here. And they are certainly here in state media focusing heavily on these recent drops in the total number of reported cases. It's something that they deem as reflective of effectiveness for this containment effort, which in some cases is a rather extreme containment effort that many folks are still living amidst the lockdown zones, tens of millions of people, in fact. But the thing that we're going to be really looking forward two is this really starting again of businesses, if you will. And that's going to be February 8th, where we're going to see tens of millions, rather about 160 million is what they're projecting, who are going to be coming back to the major cities like Beijing, like Shanghai, and they're going to be getting back to work. But Julia, what does that mean? It means people are going to be once again congregating in masses so as to travel back to these major cities. So that in of itself is a concern from a medical standpoint for exposure. But it's also not necessarily indicative that business is just going to resume as normal. In fact, we know that even for some migrant workers, they don't even have jobs in some cases to come back to. And that's because if you look at, for example, one case, a family worked for a foreign expat family, they evacuated. So they simply have nothing to step back into. And that is actually indicative of, of several different scenarios that we have heard from many migrant workers. But all in all, it's going to be interesting to see if consumer confidence boosts over the next week or so as well. That's something that's lagged here for obvious reasons. And quite frankly, folks still really aren't leaving their homes all that much. I, I will say, you know, anecdotally, driving even into work, you see more and more people with each passing day, but still not the crowds that you normally see here in Beijing. Julia? Yeah, it was interesting. I saw two different stories in the last several hours. One, JD.com, the e-commerce giant, saying that they're going to hire thousands of people to try and offset some of the impact here, which I think was an important thing. But also that the Formula One that was going to be held has now been cancelled. And that pushes us into April, just to give you a sense of the cautiousness that's being still applied here. And we're talking effectively two months out here with the idea of pulling um, masses of people together for a big event. There's still, to your point, a high degree of cautiousness at this stage and, and efforts to mitigate yeah. it going on. I think you're absolutely right. And part of that as well is looking at how the airlines have handled this. I mean, some of these airlines have gone, to your point, into April. So to say there's a light at the end of the tunnel, that's certainly what Chinese state media wants to portray in, in many ways. And perhaps they're right when it comes to this peak that's projected to be by one leading epidemiologist here in the next 10 days or so. But there's also the reality of restarting everything and getting factories back to production. And that's going to take time, weeks, if not months. Yeah, David Cover, great to have you with us as always. Thank you so much for that. To our next driver now, SoftBank's profits virtually wiped out. Big losses from its massive tech fund dragged third quarter profits down by some 99% compared to the same quarter last year. Sharice Pham is in Hong Kong for us on this story. Sharice, great to see you with us. I mean, I mentioned it at the top of the show. We work incredibly painful in this quarter. Uber, the paper losses for both of these things impacting. But it was a tale of two halves, of course, because Sprint in the last 24 hours, um, a good thing for, for SoftBank and their investment. So talk us through the details here because it's complicated. 
Yeah, a day of contrast for SoftBank here, right? On the one hand, we've got uh, their share price uh, climbing to a six-month high, closing up nearly 12% in Tokyo today. On the back of that really positive news that the Sprint T-Mobile merger is going to go through. A merger, by the way, that Masayoshi Son has been trying to engineer for years. That's a big albatross off of his neck. But of course, now he's dealing with the massive losses from the Vision Fund, which continue to plague SoftBank's earnings. Uh, Vision Fund reported $2 billion in operating losses. That was enough to completely wipe out the operating profit that was brought in by SoftBank's telecom carrier unit. So really not a good sign uh, for Masa Sun. And And he was saying, look, the Uber losses and the WeWork losses are still painful. And for the first time today, he also acknowledged reports and admitted that these recent losses to the Vision Fund are going to have effect on his next megatech fund. Have a listen. So WeWork challenges and Uber's challenges, for example, uh, share prices went down since IPO of Uber, for example, though due to those unexpected events. We have caused concerns amongst uh, potential investors of SoftBank Vision Fund 2. Unexpected events, he called it there. I think some analysts would disagree with him on that and that a lot of people were foreseeing that WeWork was a troubled company before SoftBank was pumping billions of dollars into it and driving the valuation of that company sky high. And uh, so what was he talking about there, though? The Vision Fund 2 now in danger of losing some of those potential investors. Let's remind folks of who some of those potential investors were. They were some big names. They included Microsoft, iPhone builder Foxconn Technology, Apple itself, um, as well well, Standard Chartered. We reached out to all of those companies. Most either declined to comment or they did not respond to a comment. But Masa-san coming out himself and saying these guys are rethinking their investment because uh, the Vision Fund performance has spooked them and made them very, very concerned about the performance of his company and his fund, Julia. Yeah, I mean, it makes um, it makes perfect sense to me. I mean, even just the sprint, the idea of what was achieved in the last 24 hours and the, the sort of dichotomy of the disappointing investments. And this was one of those, let's be clear, but that does shift, I believe, $44 billion off the balance sheet. So that, at least in the short term, is helpful. But to your point about the complications of trying to raise another fund here and, and perhaps some pressure here from investors, Elliott Management, the activist investment openly building up a stake in SoftBank here, perhaps to push for change here and some reassessment of, of how the Vision Fund and how SoftBank decides to make these kind of investments. What do we think of that? And what do we think SoftBank ultimately thinks of that? Sun did address that today. He kind of alluded to it in the earnings presentation, but then he was directly asked about it in the Q&A, which is always the spicier part of these presentations, I will say. Um, And he said, look, I agree with Elliott Management that our shares are grossly undervalued. Um, And he said that he met with Elliott Management about two weeks ago, and they're on the same page uh, regarding a couple things. That includes a buyback and um, also increased transparency. At the moment, SoftBank's board only has two independent directors. He says he agrees with Elliot that they need more independent directors and they already were um, having talks with people and are going to announce candidates uh, very soon. Uh, But one place where there seems to be a little bit of friction is also 
what kind of a buyback, how big it will be, and the timing of it. I believe the reported buyback that Elliott is pushing for is somewhere between 10 and $20 billion. It seems really unlikely that SoftBank is going to want to initiate that kind of a buyback at that level, especially considering how much trouble he's having now trying to fund Vision Fund 2. So it will be a little bit of a wait and see, but we are in for more of a long ride with this one, Julia. I think we can call that a clash of the titans, quite frankly. It's uh, going to be an interesting one to watch. Just a quick point on this. Bernstein saying that even with all the losses that we've seen from SoftBank, it's deeply undervalued. The Vision Fund generated a rate of return of 24% through September of 2019. So that's going to be an interesting point, perhaps, for uh, SoftBank and those guys to make. Sharice Pham, thank you for joining us. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Always a pleasure. Let's move on. Senator Bernie Sanders winning the New Hampshire primary after narrowly beating former Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Senator Amy Klobuchar, though, came in third after strong debate performances. Former Vice President Joe Biden ended up finishing in fifth place. He left for South Carolina even before the polls closed in New Hampshire. Meanwhile, entrepreneur Andrew Yang is ending his presidential campaign. Wow, what a night. Jessica Dean is live in Manchester, New Hampshire, with all the details on this. Jessica, give us your views here, because for some it's about Bernie's relative win. It's the rise of Pete Buttigieg, but also Amy Klobuchar just in the last few days, too. Lots to discuss. Yeah, there's a lot of news coming out of New Hampshire this morning. I think uh, you start with Bernie Sanders, who secured that victory last night. His campaign very pleased with that, of course. Uh, he's a neighboring senator, so there was some pressure on him to perform here. He, he, he won it so soundly back in 2016 when he was running against uh, Secretary Clinton at the time. Uh, so, so his campaign very pleased with that. Pete Buttigieg, a mayor of a small town in the middle of the country uh, who no one had really heard of, what, a year ago. Uh, really almost, you know, a very close second place there um, and really is going to propel both of them forward into this next phase of the campaign uh, where we really build out into more diverse states. And then, as you mentioned, Amy Klobuchar, of course, maybe the biggest surprise of the night uh, that she finished so strongly here in New Hampshire. It was something that they were able to build on from Iowa and then into New Hampshire. Uh, But, you know, even her campaign, I think, was surprised at just how strong of a finish she had. We had some exit polling that CNN performed here showing just a high number of people who made their decision late in the game uh, from that debate that happened last Friday until, you know, they went to vote yesterday. So really in a concentrated amount of time and that Amy Klobuchar was really able to benefit from that. So what happens now? We move into Nevada. We move into South Carolina. We move into Super Tuesday. All, you know, more diverse states, which Joe Biden's campaign is very, very excited about. They're ready for him. Uh, do they think that he can flex some muscle uh, with more diverse populations like African-American support, Hispanic support? Um, but as we move into Nevada, what's going to be an interesting thing to watch? Healthcare, of course, has been a huge issue in this primary and, and, and the, the discussion between what is the best way forward to better the healthcare system. What is going to be interesting is the unions out there and how they see, they're very powerful. How do they see health care? And one of the most powerful unions out there, the Culinary Union, has been circulating a flyer pointing out specifically Bernie Sanders and his Medicare for All policy, saying that's not good for union workers because union workers have fought so hard to get that health care in place. And they say that that would be taking it away. So there's going to be, expect to hear a lot of discussion about that, especially from Pete Buttigieg, who's Medicare 
Medicare for all who want it, which is more of a public option. And then Bernie Sanders, of course, on the other side, which is this massive overhaul of the health care system, Medicare for all. Julia. Yeah, the fight for broader appeal here. Jessica Dean, great to have you with us. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. All right, coming up after the break, Samsung adds a flip phone to its foldable range, bending over backwards to make them more durable. Plus... Well, I am the math guy, and it is clear tonight from the numbers that we are not going to win this race. The breakup of the Yang Gang. What went wrong for this businessman's pitch for the presidency? Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. We're still looking like seeing a solidly higher open for U.S. stocks this morning as we count down to the start of the trading day on Wall Street. All the major averages look set to make fresh records this morning. We're higher by a half a percent, as you can see, pre-market. That, of course, despite the coronavirus free as February is turning out to be the best month on Wall Street since June of last year. All the major averages are up some 3% or more for the month so far. Big tech also in focus once again. Shares of Microsoft and Facebook falling over 2% Tuesday on reports that the U.S. is ramping up its antitrust investigation of some of these major tech firms. Meanwhile, ratings agency Fitch warns that while we know the coronavirus will slow China's growth, the scale of the impact won't be clear for some time yet. Brian Colton is chief economist at Fitch Ratings and joins us now. Brian, great to have you with us. But the interesting thing here is you are looking potentially at seeing an outright decline in China's real GDP for the first quarter of 2020. And we're talking on a quarter on quarter basis. I mean, that that's unprecedented. Well, we've, we've got data going back to the early 90s uh, in, in, in China for, for, for sequential GDP growth, and we can't find a negative number. So this is really kind of uncharted watered, uncharted waters for the world economy. You know, we've always been talking about a slow growth scenario in China, but actually the Chinese economy is shrinking. Even for one quarter, it's going to be a really big deal for the rest of the world. What does that mean on an economic basis, but also on a psychological basis? To your point, fine, you know, we've only got data back going 40 years or so, modern uh, Chinese economic history. But the impact of that, I don't think we can underestimate. There's been a complete transformation, the impact of, of China on the world economy since the since the SARS outbreak in 2003. China's GDP is now something like 18 percent of, of the global global total, up from 5 percent back then. It's now 50 percent of metals demand, a uh, huge share of, of global auto demand, 25 percent of the global auto market. Uh, and it's been accounted for a third, a third of global growth. So you know, any any given shock to China is going to have a much bigger impact than, than 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 we had back then. And what we saw over the last eighteen months, two years in the world economy, as as China slowed down because they were focusing on deleveraging or de-risking the financial sector, that had a really big fallout on global growth, particularly in the eurozone. So uh, this is going to, this is going to matter. We you know we used to say uh, when when I first started working on the world economy, when the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold, and it's, it's a bit of an unfortunate uh, uh, simile, but. But, you know, that's that's the case now now for, for China. It really is having a huge impact on everything else. But you're talking at this stage, a worst case scenario for Chinese GDP in 2020 of what just above 5 percent. You know, we often joke about the structural setup in China that they can kind of decide what the GDP 
um, number is going to be at the beginning of the year. So what does that mean, that 5% or 5.2% in terms of your assessment actually mean in practice here for China? Because the automatic assumption here is they'll be stimulating like crazy to support the economy. I mean, that scenario assumes that this, uh, the, the panic and the disruption goes on right through March. Um, and, and, you know, there's been some, some better numbers in recent days that, you know, the number of new cases has slowed down. So maybe that's a bit of a harsh assumption. But if we do get disruption right the way through to, to March into the second quarter, then we could be looking at year-on-year growth in Q1 close to 3%. Now, 3% is the sort of number that we've all been looking at when we've been trying to assess the impact of a hard landing in China. So I think that number would would really uh, generate a, a very strong response from the government in terms of easing fiscal policy, uh, trying to boost infrastructure. So we would get a very sharp bounce back in the second half of the year. And that's why I think we'd still probably be looking at numbers around 5% or slightly above, even in that, even in that uh, w- worst case scenario. So I don't think it's a question of massaging the numbers. I think it's a question of them. 3% will be well, well outside their comfort zone and they would mm. not want uh, the, the economy to grow that slowly. So they would really push the accelerator in terms of trying to get growth back up in the second half of the year. And I think they have got the levers to achieve that. That's such a great point. It's the comfort level with the, the numbers and the, the economic output that we're seeing here. I do want to ask you about your decision at the back end of last year to lower the rating and the outlook on Hong Kong in particular. The authorities there said your assessment of the situation was was incorrect. You were concerned about the institutional set-up, the, the, the rule of law, the impact that potentially could have on the business community. In reflection, do you remain happy with the, the rating and the outlook that you have in Hong Kong or has anything changed? Because we haven't seen businesses shifting out of the region. They still look at it as an opportunity and a conduit in and out of China. No, we never we never said that it, it would affect Hong Kong in that sort of way. It was about the linkage between Hong Kong and China becoming uh, much 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 stronger over time, and so the gap between the two ratings was was looking uh, was look, was looking stretched. We have seen the Hong Kong economy already uh, enter recession because of the impact of the, uh, of, the of the social unrest on on uh, on the economy, and now this China shock is going to make things worse. So, in terms of the macroeconomic situation, no, it's it's really looking quite uh, it's really looking quite tough. Uh, really looking quite tough for Hong Kong at the moment. Mm. Brian, fantastic to have your insight. Brian Colton, Chief Economist at Fitch Ratings. Thank you for that. Now, one of China's biggest e-commerce firms is taking on workers who've been laid off because of the coronavirus. As I mentioned earlier on the show, JD.com says it's opening up 20,000 new positions, mainly for warehouse workers, couriers and drivers. Now, some of the jobs are temporary, but online shopping has seen a boom as people in medical quarantine order goods from home. All right, let's turn our attention now to South Korea, where Samsung's having another go at making a foldable smartphone. It's called the Galaxy Z Flip, and it folds into a square. Its first folding phone, the Galaxy Fold, came out last year, if you remember, but earlier reviewers said it didn't work so well, and it broke easily. Samantha Kelly has one of the new phones. She's actually tried it out. This is very exciting. Sam, what do we think of this phone? Have they managed to uh, get away from that awkward history with their first attempt? 
Right. So yesterday was a big day for the company out in San Francisco where it announced its new S20 flagship smartphones. But to your point, everybody is talking about the Z flip phone. So we have one here. Uh, it comes out tomorrow uh, in stores. And uh, basically, it's much smaller than the first version, which kind of opened like a book. This is a clamshell uh, design here. Totally new design, new hinge, which was one of the big problems that we saw with the first version with them breaking and the, the screen flickering. Now, we've only had this for a little bit, so we can't really test the battery and how well the hinge will hold up. But um, I really like the new design. Um, it's much sturdier. And what I really like is there's so many big smartphones these, these days. Everything is big. Um, but this is definitely a throwback to the original flip phones that we saw years and years ago where it's smaller. So it's much easier to throw into a bag. Um, there's also a small display on the front too, so you can get running notifications. Uh, but what I really like too is, you know, we're so used to having a smartphone flash uh, notifications and glow when we get uh, get something in, and this is sort of a way to kind of close that. So we'll see whether or not uh, how this uh, stacks up in reviews, but it's certainly a nice form factor here. And $600 cheaper than the Galaxy Fold as well, so uh, I'm oh sure my goodness. like that. It's going to be interesting to see. Samantha Kelly. Great yeah. to have you with us. Thank you so much for Thank you. that assessment of uh, the phone available tomorrow. Thank you so much for that. All right, we're counting down to the market open. We are set to see fresh record highs for the Dow, the Nasdaq and the S&P 500. As you can see, we're adding to the gains we were seeing just 15 minutes ago. The market open is next and it looks like we're going to go. Stay with us. You're with First Move. to first move live from New York. That was the opening bell over at the New York Stock Exchange and U.S. stocks are in rally mode this morning. The S&P and the Nasdaq as we anticipated making fresh all-time highs early on in the session here. The Dow also on track for a record close. Traders will be monitoring Fed Chair Jay Powell's testimony on Capitol Hill. Of course, he spoke yesterday saying that the Fed would take action if the impact of the coronavirus threatens U.S. growth going forward. In the meantime, take a look at what's going on in energy prices. Oil strengthening for a second straight day, significantly actually a bounce back here. China has reported its lowest daily number of fresh coronavirus cases since January and we saw OPEC today drastically cutting its outlook for oil demand in 2020. Now you'd expect that to have the reverse reaction in the oil markets but I have to say I think that's pretty much baked into the price right now. Of course just two days ago oil was trading at one year lows. What about a look now at our global movers? Shares of Spotify rallying to all-time highs. The Canadian e-commerce company reporting stronger-than-expected Q4 earnings. It's also raising its 2020 outlook, as you can see, up some 17%, just shy of Shopify there. Bank, Bed, Bath and Beyond shares tumbling. The popular home furnishing retailer warning that sales slowed by a greater-than-expected rate in December and January. Wow, down some 26%. Lift shares also under pressure down 
more than 6.5%. Uber's ride-sharing rival says revenue topped $1 billion for the first time in Q4. But Lyft says it won't be profitable until 2021. That's around a year later than Uber says they can get there. Uber shares, as you can see, little changed in the session. Right, let's leave the ride-hailing race behind and go on to a fresh race here. And we're talking about the race to the White House. Senator Bernie Sanders scoring a victory in Tuesday's primary in New Hampshire, narrowly holding off a challenge from Pete Buttigieg. Our campaign is not just about beating Trump. It is about transforming this country. It is about having the courage to take on Wall Street, the insurance companies, the drug companies, the fossil fuel industry, the military industrial complex. But it was a bad night for Elizabeth Warren and former Vice President Joe Biden to CNN senior political analyst David Gergen joins us now. David, fantastic to have you with us on the show. We can talk about Bernie Sanders and the, the implications of what we saw in that vote last night. But I do want to talk about the, the stunning demise, it seems, of, of Joe Biden and the support that he's getting. He predicted that he would lose here and he'd already moved on. Are we looking at the end game here for, for Joe Biden? Well, thank you, Joey, for inviting me on. I do think he's in deep, deep trouble now. Uh, and, and the most important story of the campaign so far has been the near collapse of Joe Biden. He was the front runner. Everyone counted on him to take the fight to Trump. Uh, he's finished fourth in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire. Um, you know, I wonder, I must tell you, you know, the uh, the Trump folks uh, were going after him uh, in Ukraine. They wanted to smear him. I wonder whether the controversies over his son and over his own personal relationship with things in Ukraine wound up wound up weakening him as a candidate in, in this race, whether, in fact, the Trump people got what they wanted um, after all. So I we'll have to wait and see. I, I would tell you as well, Julia, that... It's also true that that uh, Joe Biden has not campaigning for the presidency has not been his forte. Uh, this is his third time seeking the presidency. He has yet to win a primary or a caucus. You know, it's interesting. What it does do, therefore, is potentially open up the center ground. I mean, we saw yes. voters going for Pete Buttigieg here, Amy Klobuchar's rise, even just since the debate that we saw last week has been quite fascinating yeah. here, too. But then, of course, you've got the wild card here, which is which is Mike Bloomberg. What do we think <laughs> here and what do we think is acceptable to the party? And we'll leave Bernie Sanders out of it for a second and we'll come back to that. Well, I, I do think that um, it, Bernie Sanders has become the front runner, but uneasy rests the crown. Uh, he, after all, again, four years ago when he won New Hampshire against Hillary Clinton, he won it massively. He won by 20 points. This time he won by two points. Um, and the turnout was not particularly good. But very importantly, as you said, uh, the departure of Biden has opened up this moderate lane. And what was interesting last night is if you add up all the people who voted for the, say, the progressive far left candidates versus those who voted for the moderate left candidates, the moderate left drew the most votes by you know, about 
52% of the voters went for the more moderate candidates, and about 36% of the voters went for the far right or far left, I'm sorry, progressives. So that that explains why there is this open invitation, not maybe not an invitation, but why Mike Bloomberg is gaining strength. Uh, he's he's a person, of course, of enormous ability. He here in New York, he was elected to mayor three times, um, and he has formidable strengths, including his resources. Uh, and very, very interestingly, a poll last week showed that in head-on-heads among the Democrats who are now in the still in the race against Trump. Mike Bloomberg has the biggest lead against Trump. It's a nine-point lead, according to a Quinnipiac poll. That quite I, I took me aback because I didn't think he'd come that far that fast. You know, it's interesting. And CNN's polling shows that, by and large, Democrats here are saying, look, we, we do ultimately want someone that can take the fight to Donald Trump here, that can yes. beat Donald Trump, rather than necessarily somebody who we agree with all their policies. I just want to pull in what Elizabeth Warren said in, in congratulation for yes. the win here for Bernie Sanders and the sort of dig that was implied. Just listen to this for a second. If we're going to beat Donald Trump in November, we're going to need huge turnout within our party. And to get that turnout, we will need a nominee that the broadest coalition of our party feels like they can get behind. And this for me is the question about about Bernie Sanders here. Yes, he got 25%, but it is what only a quarter of the votes here. And how does that support translate on a more national level for voters, for the Democratic Party themselves? The views that others that have worked with him in, in DC and say, this is not a person that unites. In fact, he's not achieved much since his time in, uh, in Washington. And it's been a long while. What do we think of this guy's yeah. popular appeal on a nation basis? Uh, on paper, you would think that if Bernie Sanders uh, wins a few more, he would be a front runner. It'd be almost impossible to stop. But I, but as you suggested, Julia, the the pros in the Democratic Party are frightened of a of a, a Bernie Sanders uh, candidacy. He is an avowed socialist, and America has a long history of opposing socialism, being much less. You know, going all the way back to the 1920s, we've been much less receptive to socialists. We've never had a socialist party in the United States. You look across Western Europe, and most of the countries there have had socialist parties, still have socialist parties. But that's been anathema to the United States. So it's when you take the long view, it's just hard to imagine Bernie Sanders emerging as the nominee. But he is on a better track than he's ever been before. So that's the title he can take at this stage, the most popular socialist in America. Quite what he can yeah. do with that remains to be seen. Yes. <laughs> thank you so much. Stay David tuned, Julia. Glad to see you this morning. Likewise, sir. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But up next, the Spotify of the Middle East. The co-founder of the music streaming app Angami will be here. He says he welcomes competition from Western rivals. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. Meet the Spotify of the Middle East. Dubai-based Angami is the leading music streaming app in the Middle East and North Africa. It boasts 73 million users, a library of 31 million songs, and a billion streams a month. Now, Bloomberg reports the company is considering a sale, which could value it at up to $400 million. I'm joined now by Ellie Habib, who's Angami's co-founder. Ellie, fantastic to have you on the show. You've revolutionized, digitized, 
increased music consumption in the Middle East and North Africa. Talk to me about what your company ultimately is doing, how it works and why you're not worried by some of the uh, big competition that's now looking at the region. Hello, Julia. Thank you for having me. Uh, basically, you know, when you know, we had the dream uh, roughly eight years ago that, you know, the, the, the region has no legal ser streaming service. I mean, we have absolutely no legal anything in terms of, uh, uh, you know, IP rights, so whether it's books or movies or music. We thought that we, you know, locals could come up with an idea, you know, come up with a concept of streaming music in the region and get people to buy into that. And, you know, we had, you know, not that big of a dream in terms of numbers. We thought we we're going to get like maybe 300,000 users in the first year. And we eventually got a million the first three months. And after that, we realized we were onto something and we kept growing. Right now, looking at that, yes, we, we're growing where uh, 2019 was our biggest year on record. Uh, and, you know, way more than what I could have expected. Uh, uh, hopefully, it, it validated the idea that when competition comes in, if you're properly uh, armed, if you're not just a local brand, because local helps, but if you have a good product and the local brand and local know-how, understanding of what your users want, you can keep growing. Uh, so, yes, I'm not worried. I'm happy that there's competition because, uh, after all, uh, competition breeds, I mean, more creativity on our end. And right now, we're not exactly the same product like uh, others in the region, um, but we're, we're fighting to make sure that we remain the number one by far, like we did in 2019. What differentiates you? Because you do have a mix of, of local artists, of international artists. What kind of demand do you see for, for a mix of those products? And to your point, you say we're not exactly the same. Why aren't you? What are you doing differently? Uh, we started, you know, when we started, there was like no book to follow, right? Uh, for us, we understand that the, the user, uh, to, to actually to listen to music, to, to eventually get to pay to music, he needs to believe in something. He needs to believe he, that what he can do, the, the platform uh, interacts with him in a way uh, that would make sense for a user to pay. And we, and we need to find ways that the user would pay without it being a credit card uh, commitment. People in the Middle East notoriously don't use credit card online, you know, the biggest platforms like Amazon has, I think, 60% cash on delivery. In our case, you know, cash on delivery wouldn't work in streaming world. So one, we made sure that we're actually integrated with all the telcos in the Middle East. We're currently integrated with 36 telcos. That's not exactly all, but that's all, uh, most of what matters, right? Uh, over 85% of active people in the in the region can subscribe via mobile operator on Angami, which is a kind of unique to everybody. Uh, we provide um, moreover, we, we, we don't just do Arabic, you know, or international. Uh, the people in the region uh, listen to a mixture of both. You, you would want to listen to Fairuz in the morning and maybe some Britney Spears <laughs> later at, when it's night. That's normal. I mean, that's a kind of weird combination, but I've seen way w w worse than that, I, honestly. So uh, we understand the user DNA, the user taste, uh, and that took us many billions of streams for us to understand that. And that's the differentiation that will require a lot of other competitors to take, you know, many years to actually get to the 
sense of understanding the users. Yeah, but for Anhami, we differentiate ourselves by our product. Our product is actually uniquely social, uh, which is, you know, no, no other product has the features that Anhami in terms of social, because we think that music streaming, the way it was invented originally and was started from, you know, back, uh, back from the Walkman and eventually to the I, uh, iPod and all of, and then eventually to Pandora and Spotify Ellie. stopped over there. We think Ellie, the consumption and the music Forgive has me to be for interrupting you, Ellie, because I, I don't want to run out of time without asking you, but I love the point that you make about payments because that was going to be one of my, one of my key questions is how do people pay when actually credit card penetration is so low? So I do think that's important. Talk to me about potentially selling. Yeah. I mentioned in the introduction about whether you're open to be bought by somebody, one of these competitors. Do you want to remain independent or are you having conversations and are you open to being bought some price, at least. What's, yeah, I mean, what's open for us <laughs> is that we actually signed up JP Morgan to raise a fund, uh, you know, to raise a round of funding. Uh, and we, since doing that, we've gone, we've been approached by multiple parties who are interested uh, to buy, uh, to carve some equity or to buy out the entire company. Uh, we're contemplating that. We have not decided. What's for sure for me is like I'm very much interested on how Angami heads in. I mean, we're not going to sell out just to sell out. Uh, we we want to actually make sure that Angami keeps growing properly in the region, and uh, we're in a very comfortable place. We're one of the v uh, streaming services that, is, that are profitable, uh, and that is kind of unique in the in the world of music streaming uh, and why because we know how to spend our money and how to grow and how to invest we yes. think 2020 is going to be very big whether we're going to sell i can't answer that right now because we haven't decided but whether we're going to keep growing and doing more investments for sure congratulations ellie come back and talk to us soon fascinating i've got Thank plenty you. more questions for you i can tell you ellie habib there co-founder of music streaming app angami great you. to have you with us thank you for having all me all right Thank you. Still ahead, sharpening up the fangs. The fang stocks have been a fantastic way to track the growth in tech investment. Here on First Move, though, we think it might be time to consider expanding this pretty exclusive club. Stay with us. Welcome back. U.S. President Donald Trump praising some of the big U.S. tech companies at the White House yesterday. He says four in particular are making corporate America great again. We have four trillion dollar companies. One is Microsoft, one is Apple, one is Google, one is Amazon. So you have Amazon, Google, Apple, and Microsoft. And so you have an M, you have an A, you have a G, and you have an A, you have MAGA. President Trump calls them the MAGA stocks. It's his variation on a group better known on Wall Street as the Fangs. The Fangs have been Wall Street shorthand for the hottest U.S. tech names for years. But with new global titans gunning for growth, maybe the Fangs have become a bit long in the tooth. So first move as a plan to make the Fangs great again. It's the exclusive club that the tech world obsesses over. The Fangs, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Alphabet. They've been members since 2013. Then Apple joined the gang a few years later. But with Tesla increasingly defined as more tech than tires, and Microsoft, a $1 trillion market cap cloud colossus, maybe the Fangs need a bit more bite. The fangs continue to be the Mount Rushmore of tech. I think right now, Tesla and Microsoft 
Microsoft being my probably more front and center are the only two names that I could see in terms of expanding that FANG definition. Perhaps a full-throated FANG overhaul is now in order. Call them, if you will, the phantoms of Wall Street. All the original FANGs plus the might of Musk and the riches of Redmond. Facebook, Apple, Alphabet, Netflix, Tesla, Amazon and Microsoft. Seven corporate bellwethers to better represent the tech titans of today. The phantoms might represent a strange new world for some, but perhaps one day they'll get some tech world acclaim. Paula Monica joins me now. Look, Paul, that's my version of a mask. A little bit more high-end. <laughs> On behalf of all your viewers, Julia, I'm glad that you went with that Andrew Lloyd Webber and not cats. Leave that to uh, my colleague Richard Quest, of course. I think uh, we'll move on quickly. Um, Paul, what do you think? Phantoms? And then we'll talk President Trump. Yeah, I mean, there is obviously more to this market momentum than those really large uh, tech stocks that dominate the S&P 500. I actually had a story earlier this week calling them the S&P 5, essentially, when you look at the market cap concentration in that index. But of course, Tesla as, and Netflix also are extremely popular right now. You could throw in some of the international companies like Alibaba and Tencent as well. You know, that's why some people refer to the bats in China of Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent. So we all know that Wall Street loves an, uh, acronyms and so does President Trump, obviously. The one thing with Trump here that I find curious he has often taken pot shots at these companies, particularly Amazon, the Jeff Bezos, Washington Post. And now he's praising them for their market milestones because he's trying to make it about him and that he deserves the credit. Not so sure about that. And remember also, the FTC is now looking at the acquisitions of all these companies. There's talk of potential breakups. So it's just very strange. It is, it is very strange. And this, to, to the point, though, is the heart of innovation and success in corporate America and jobs are being created. So there is a balance to find here. It's just uh, clearly a little bit difficult at the moment, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And obviously, I mean, you're, we're gonna see what happens with the Democrats, with Bernie Sanders winning New Hampshire. He hasn't been a big fan of large tech yes. companies either. And you know, will these companies have to get broken up? Will there be more taxes? You know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I think my other observation here would be MAGA perhaps stands for Make Alphabet Google again, because we still, we keep calling it by the wrong name. And uh, It's kind of yeah. like the coming to America joke. You know, some I people agree. still call Muhammad Ali Cassius Clay. I think I most know. people still call Alphabet Please, Google. I know. Time, time to call it Alphabet anyway. Paul and Monica, thank you so much for playing with us. We have to go. That just about wraps up the show. I like phantoms. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make your We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.